You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 75 of the Common Descent Podcast. 75? Yeah. Hey, there's a five. Ooh, hey, those are significant. All of our listeners know what that means. We have this long-standing tradition now of when episodes end in a five, we talk about extinction. Yeah. And fortunately, we have had a bunch of really great suggestions for extinction episodes. This one is maybe the weirdest one. Today, we are talking about the Great Oxidation Event. Which sounds like it should be a good thing. You know, so the the Great Oxidation Event is a very strange choice for an extinction episode, but I stand by it because it's going to be fun. (laughs) This is a time period in the early Earth. Er, Well, early from our standards, when oxygen levels first become significantly high on the planet. Yeah, because oxygen wasn't always a major player in the atmosphere. Sure was not. This was great for some forms of life. And that's one of those weird things is, you know, like it sounds like it should be a good thing, but what is good for one group is can often be poisonous for another. And the reason that it's such an interesting, it's a great event to do an episode about, and we put it in extinction because it technically fits, but this is the first time in in our extinction tradition that we are talking about an extinction event that is sort of hypothetical. Yeah, like, there there absolutely should be an extinction. Yes, but we don't have a fossil record, really, from that time. Because of all those squishy things. So, whereas most of our extinction episodes, it's, here's what disappears from the fossil record, and thus is extinct. We don't have that. Yeah. This is lear- studying geological evidence and chemical evidence to tell us how the world changed and infer what must have happened to life during this pivotal event where one of the most important Earth transitions, particularly for the world that we know today, that allows us to talk into a microphone and do a podcast. Just like that. So we're going to talk about what early Earth was like, what happened around the great oxidation event itself, and what the impacts are thought to have been on life as we know it and as we don't know it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This episode topic was requested by our patron, Lydia. Thanks, Lydia. Great suggestion. Yeah, good one. So we're going to get into it, but first, a couple of announcements. Speaking of patrons, we have a bunch of patrons on our Patreon uh, who we're grateful for their patronage. Yeah. And if you Patreon with us at a certain level, we will say your name in gratitude. Could you give us an example? So, for example, this episode, we are happy to welcome Mark, Michael, Clover, and Ollie. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. As a reminder, if you are not a patron yet, and but maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you're not thinking about it, You get all sorts of goodies. We do director's notes. We've been doing bonus news. Yeah. We do. There's extra stuff you can get, including getting your name called out. And you can ask us questions for us to answer on the podcast. Stay tuned later. One more announcement. Speaking of asking us questions, it's November. 
Yes, it is. Which means that 2019 is almost over. It is rapidly drawing to a close. Last year, we wrapped up the year with a big mailbag Q&A. So we're going to do it again. I'm so excited. Check our social media, or you can check the episode description for this episode for a link to a Google form where you can submit whatever question you want. Yeah. Science, personal, random hypothetical. Absolutely. And we will answer it at the end of the year in what is sure to be a big, climactic, exciting end-of-the-year Q&A episode 2019. Can't wait. Make your voices heard. Whole new decade coming up. Yeah. But that's all for announcements. Which means we're on to the next segment, the news. News! Every episode, we pull some news from paleontology evolution, the kind of scientific topics that we find relevant to the podcast, and go over a couple of them for you, our listeners. Hey, Will, Mm -hmm. what news bringeth you to... What what do you got? (laughs) I'm here to talk about big apes. Okay. The biggest ape. The best apes? Yeah, in my opinion. <laughs> Gigantopithecus. That's a pretty good one. It's it's famous, famous as the largest fossil ape, and even compared to those alive today, that we've ever discovered. So, big ape, new research has confirmed some, or seems to confirm, some suspected uh, relationships with today's apes. Ooh. So, this is research by Frito Welker et al. in Nature. And the article we're linking to is by Bruce Bauer in Science News. So Gigantopithecus blackii is the famous giant ape from China that is the largest we've ever found. It was discovered in 1935, first identified by a single tooth bought from a drugstore in Hong Kong. Yep. So (laughs) an interesting start. Uh, Now, since then, nearly 2,000 isolated teeth and a, a... at least four, I think it was. Yeah, four partial jaws wow. have been found, but not much more. So we don't have like really solid specimens. Lots of fossils, not a lot of coverage. Which means that we don't really have a great way to nail down what was Gigantopithecus, like compared to other apes. Right, it was you know. big something. Yeah, was this more of a gorilla? Was this more of a chimp? Was this more of an orangutan? The orangutan has been the popular suspect, is that it was some relative... Of an orangutan, more heavily built, the estimates on the teeth put it at somewhere between two and 300 kilograms, which is, to translate, somewhere between 440 and 660 pounds, (laughs) which even that lower number is higher than the average weight for full-grown adult gorillas today. Yeah. So this is big. This is a big ape. (laughs) Big. It lived very recently, 2 million to 300,000 years ago. So, right at the origin of our own species, Homo sapiens. Yeah. Uh, Man, if we could have rubbed shoulders. Maybe we did. (laughs) This is an ape that seems like it was bigger, built to live in forests, uh, possibly uh, adapted to eat tougher foods, like tubers and stuff. And it seems like it's some sort of orangutan relative, but this is, as a quote in the article said, rested on very thin evidence. Mm. There wasn't really solid uh, support for this. So this study did a protein analysis. Oh, cool. Extracted proteins from a nearly 2 million year old tooth and were able to compare it to various modern apes to see what might shake out, you know, who might it be most similar to. Proteins preserve 
much better than DNA typically, so this is why they aim for it. They didn't look for DNA because they don't expect to find it in bones this old. Nope. Uh, this came from, from southern China's Chuefang Cave, and what they were able to do was retrieve some amino acid sequences from six proteins, which five of those can be found in modern groups. Chimps, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, and us. Oh, so all the great apes yep. you can compare. So they compared across the great apes and found that of those, orangutans displayed the fewest disparities, so the least amount of change. Okay, so more most similarity. Most similarity. Hmm. Orangutans had a lot in common here compared to the rest, which means that orangutans and Gigantopithecus split from a common ancestor. They estimate from the proteins and age of the fossils somewhere between 10 and 12 million years ago. Okay. So they shared an ancestor that far back. You know, it is not a giant orangutan. Right, right, right. But it's a close cousin of that group compared to the rest of the great apes. If I remember correctly, if I remember my ape phylogeny, that's about the time that our lineage, us and chimps, split off from gorillas. Yeah, that sounds correct. I think our split with with orangutans is a little bit before that. Mm -hmm. So that's an ancient split. Yes, that's way back. They're not just giant orangutans. Even though that's how they're often reconstructed. Famously uh, depicted in the Jungle Book. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is not conclusive, you know, 100%. More protein analysis is going to be needed from other uh, fossil Asian primates or uh, great apes. So they're going to need to kind of fill out the lineages between 12 and 2 million years ago to really support this. But so far, this seems like solid support for what was suspected of this giant ape. Very cool. I like, number one, uh, the orangutan comparison is what I've always heard. Yes. And so it's nice to get another area of potential support. Also, paleoprotein studies is just such a cool thing we can do now. It almost seems like cheating, like compared to how hard <laughs> things used to be with stuff like, like, it's so wonderful. Well, when you said it, I, my first thought was, oh, right, you could do that with Gigantopithecus. And it, and my brain started filing through, like, what are all the other cool, really young yeah. Yeah. <laughs> organisms that we could study proteins on if we had good enough fossil remains? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Well, hopefully this will provide a good stand-in for us not having any of the rest of the body yet. Yeah, (laughs) one can hope. There is a little bit extra protein info, because the sixth protein they were able to acquire didn't fall in with the other groups, so they couldn't use it for that analysis, but it does seem to be linked to a process where minerals are produced and uh, built up to harden bones and teeth. Oh. So it might be a what helped contribute to the especially thick enamel on Gigantopithecus. Oh, that's cool. So this protein actually might be what made them a more robust chewer, as as they were mentioning earlier. Oh, and it's something that our modern great apes do not exhibit. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. What cool insights. It's proteins. Well, for my first bit of news, I'm going to take us a, a ways farther back than that. More than two million years ago? More than, if you can imagine such a thing. Three. Just you wait for this episode topic, man. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to say the word millions once. (laughs) (laughs) My next bit of news takes us back to the Cretaceous period, 
just around 100 million years ago for what appears to be the oldest direct evidence of insect pollination of a flowering plant. Ooh, that's that's exciting. Isn't that cool? This is research by Tong Bao et al. in the journal PNAS, and we'll link to an article in Science Alert by Michelle Starr. We talked about angiosperms back in episode 57. Yep. And about how they radiated in the Cretaceous, which is to say diversified, expanded, uh, came in all sorts of new shapes and sizes. This is obviously a hugely important event because flowering plants, angiosperms, are the dominant terrestrial plants today. Kind of a big deal. By an enormous margin. Yeah. Like, to say angiosperms are the dominant terrestrial plants is kind of like saying humans are the dominant great apes. Yes. Like, <laughs> not by, like, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> There's, it's, a big, it's a big deal. And key to the spread of angiosperms today is pollinators. Angiosperm, one of the coolest things angiosperms did is figure out, quote, figure out, evolve, yes. adapt, to take advantage of animals. Yes. Like, here's a bunch of pollen, carry it to my mate. But there's not a lot of fossil evidence to show us the early evolution of this co-evolution. This new study presents a chunk of Burmese amber, because just lots of the coolest stuff comes out of amber. Episode 62. From around 100 million years ago, 99 is usually what it's uh, identified at, inside the amber is a type of insect called a tumbling flower beetle. I like that name. Yeah, I mean, apparently it's a whole group of beetles. Yeah, tumbling flower beetles. This makes it seem like they're flying and just in a... <laughs> <laughs> this one, perhaps not a surprise, is a new genus and species. Because so much of when we find Cretaceous amber is new genus, genera, and species. Named Angimordella bermatina. It is among the earliest representatives of the tumbling, tumbling flower beetles in the fossil record. And, very excitingly, its little hairs on its body have pollen grains attached to them. Nice. Mainly attached to the abdomen and the thorax. And they were revealed, the researchers identified them, using confocal laser scanning microscopy. I love how sci-fi paleontology is getting. What a time. <laughs> Basically, laser scanning microscopes, which allowed them to look really super close at the pollen grains on the body of this beetle in amber. What's super cool is that it doesn't look like this was just a beetle that happened to be covered in amber. Like, this wasn't the one beetle. Because... The beetle is specialized for visiting flowers. The shape of its body, the shape of its mouth parts, and the shape of the hairs on its body are all similar to pollen-feeding, flower-visiting insect pollinators today. That's awesome. This was a beetle that was built to carry pollen. And in fact, and indeed, it wasn't just like a couple grains of pollen. There were 62 grains of pollen identified on this beetle. Cool. And not only that, the pollen itself, identified as eudicot pollen, which is a group that includes about three quarters of all modern day angiosperms. The pollen is, here's a, here's a fun word, zoophilus, animal loving. <laughs> it We're is, zoophilus. We, yeah, we sure are, aren't we? Do we both exhibit uh, clumping behavior and reticulate surfaces? 
Uh, it's like my mother wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> I always said that about Will. Little little clumpy Will. The pollen <laughs> clumps together, and the reticulate surface is the shape on the surface of the pollen. Both traits allow the pollen to more easily cling to the hair, the legs of the beetle. This is that effect that you see when you, they zoom in on bees and they have those yellow, you know, big knee braces on their back legs where the pollen has gathered together specifically to be carried. So it's not just that this beetle was adapted for going for pollen. The pollen is adapted for sticking to the beetle. That's awesome. This is direct evolution, uh, direct evidence of coevolution of plants and insect pollinators back in the Cretaceous, a hundred million years ago, which makes it, according to uh, the write-up, the oldest insect angiosperm pollination evidence by at least 50 million years. Wow. Once again, not a small margin. Wow. That's ridiculous. I love when we find these sort of things out, that it's that this this super complex phenomena actually started fairly early on compared to what we might have expected, because that just screams to me that this was a, a relationship just waiting to happen as soon as the pieces were in place. Oh, it, it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. This is just inherently beneficial please start making pollen so I can start carrying it around. <laughs> like, yes, this, this is uh, the, the Mesozoic's OTP. Yes, exactly. And that's so cool. Yeah, I am increasingly, over the time we have been doing this podcast, I have become exponentially appreciative of Amber. Amber, I mean, it's been a source for a notable percentage of our news. Yeah, yeah, it has. <laughs> Absolutely. And one whole episode. Yeah. And it's, a bunch of news. It's pretty awesome. What a cool... And and we live at a time, much like we talked about with the protein studies, where we can analyze amber in ways that we could not before. It's... Like, like I joke about how sci-fi we're getting, but it these are things that, had we gone back to the earliest people looking at amber and told them what we were finding out about it, it would be like we were describing Harry Potter spells. Like, yep. no, you didn't yeah. shut up confocal laser what yeah no UK go away go continue doing whatever you did to have those crazy hallucinations what a cool time that's awesome imagine what you'll know tomorrow <laughs> so when it comes to early stuff i wanted to talk about an early bird for the next news okay yeah. i bet this is in the cretaceous as well this is oh. this is indeed this is the with, with this research dubbing it Second most basal, so primitive. It's early branching yes. in the evolutionary tree. Flying bird. Oh. Second only to Archaeopteryx. Fossilized in here, uh, getting the worm. <laughs> yes, yes indeed. <laughs> this is research by Takuya Imai et al. in Communications Biology. And the article is by George Dvorsky in Gizmodo. So Archaeopteryx is the famous first bird. Late Jurassic, we're talking 160, 140 million years ago. It is the earliest known flying dinosaur. It still holds that title. But there are others who have come close. And this new early bird seems to be the next most basal, the next most primitive, showing early features of flying, not yet fully bird. 
Right, right. Of the flying bird, of the fossil flying birds we know, right up at the base of the bird family tree. Whoop! Hence Not basil. Yes, exactly. So this is Fucoipteryx prima. It's a new genus and species. Uh, this is from the early Cretaceous, so 120 million years old. Not quite as old. This was from Japan and is the first bird from this age range found in this area. Oh, fun. And found outside northeastern China, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is a cool new early member, and I don't know if you would technically call this a range extension, but a, a new area. Right, right. It, it is, we have found a type of ecosystem that has not yet been found yes. in that part of the world, which is cool. They've described this as the second most primitive due to certain features that it has that seem to suggest it is on that earliest branch of bird evolution. Uh, this supplants Jehole Ornus, which was the second most, and is now the third most primitive. Yeah, so, we're fill, oh. filling in those, yeah. those spaces. Yep. <laughs> this one also is three-dimensionally preserved, Ooh. Uh, which is awesome. Seems to be nearly fully grown at about the size of a pigeon. Nice. Which, yeah, a little tiny. That, not, not unusual for birds of the time. And because of this, it was able to yield a lot of anatomical information, uh, lots of detail. So some of the interesting things about this specimen. First, one of the weird things they noticed is it was actually found in relatively young sediment. There are, quote, more advanced species of early bird found in older sediments than this new one. Right, right. And they actually said they redid their analysis to make sure they didn't make a mistake. <laughs> but yeah, for some reason, this very primitive looking bird is a little bit younger than some that have more advanced features. Right. So it wasn't necessarily one of the earliest individuals, but it is representative of one of the earliest off branches yes. of the bird family tree. Exactly. They decided to do a comparative analysis, a physical analysis of it and other fossil birds. That's how they were trying to determine where it fell on this, this basal uh, ranking. They did not want to remove the fossils to, for fear of damaging them, so they micro-CT scanned them nice. to make a 3D model. Because it's the future. Because it's the future. And they found some interesting things. Uh, some were similarities shared with Archaeopteryx, you know, uh, other basal features. Large wishbone, unfused pelvis, so the, the hips. The sin sacrum. Yep. Uh, very similar forelimbs. But unlike Archaeopteryx, it had what's called a, a pygostyle. A fully yeah. formed pygostyle. This is a special little triangular bone at the tip of the tailbone, the backbone. And it's what modern birds use to attach the tail feathers and maneuver them and control them. So it's very key to flight in modern birds. They don't believe Fukuitrix was using its pygostyle that way. Uh, they do think it was flight capable, but not like super flight capable, probably gliding and very heavy flapping. But it doesn't seem like this was contributing to that. But it is there. Interesting. I know that there are some non-flying dinosaurs that have a pyga style. Probably, I would guess, for attachment of feathers that are display-oriented. Yeah, and dinosaurs that we do not think were at all flighted. Right, like I think Ovira some oviraptorids yeah. have it. No, that those are not flying dinosaurs. And so this is a notable thing. This is one of the earliest... This is, this is a very early presence of the pyga style. Nice. Uh, those did not appear until the early Cretaceous and previously were mainly only known from 
later diverging fossil birds. Right, right. So this is a early uh, early appearance of it and seems to suggest, along with the age and the other dinosaurs that seem to have it, that this feature is not as key to flight as was once thought in the past. Right, right. And that it has evolved multiple times. Yep. That it may not be a feature that evolves for flight, but a feature evolves while you are shortening the tail and having feathered features, perhaps. Later co-opted for flight. Yes, exactly. Uh, so this new bird seems to be, once again, backing up the, the more modern point of view for bird evolution, that it was not a single lineage that it led to birds, but multiple experiments into feathery flighted dinosaurs. Yes, a whole mosaic. A whole mosaic in that Fukuithrix fell into this mosaic. I'm excited by the fact that it came from a different place. Yeah! Because I don't know uh, anything about that fossil deposit, but one, I can hope that if this was found in that region, maybe there are other hints of bird, uh, early bird evolution to be found in the same rocks. Yeah, it's it's always exciting when you uncover a new uh, uh, section of the map. When the, when the fog of war... Yes, <laughs> it's cleared a little bit and you can get a look at what was this area doing. Yeah, our map, however, has four dimensions. <laughs> you have to remove the fog in four dimensions. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, jot that down for a game design. There you go. <laughs> for more on Bird Evolution, episode 37. Well, for my next bit of news, I thought that I would switch things up a bit and talk about uh, new fossil discoveries that tell us more about the early evolution of a group of cool animals from the Cretaceous. You did a croc article? No. No, oh. no, no, I did not. Cooler oh. animals. Oh. oh well, Even cooler animals sur than survey says crocs. That's that doesn't exist. New snake fossils. <laughs> <laughs> this is research on not a new snake, but new fossil remains of a very famous early snake. That shed new light on how snakes evolved and what early snakes were really like. Cool. Early members of cool groups. This is research by Fernando Garbarolio et al. in Science Advances, and we'll link to an article in Cosmos by Nick Karn. Way back in episode three, we talked about how in the Cretaceous there was this whole consortium, this whole group of early snakes with legs. Yeah. Hind legs, right? Snakes that had lost the front legs still retained the hind legs, but were obviously snakes and ancestral to snakes as we know them. One of the most famous of these is a snake called Nahash. Cool name. Found in Argentina, lived around 95 million years ago. It is notable for that time for being a terrestrial limbed snake. A lot of the famous ones from back then are aquatic. And it has these robust hind limbs that made it famous along with the other legged snakes. But Nahash is known from a partial skull and one partial skeleton, which is not unusual. Mainly that's what it's known from. And that has been very informative, but researchers are always happy to find new material. Especially for things like lizards and snakes, skulls are very informative because... You may think of legs being sort of the snake thing. Is, oh, they lose their legs and that's a very snake-like feature. But that's not really true. No. Well, it's true. But they're 
by far not the only lizards who have done that. Yeah, that's a that's a popular trend within that group. Lizards lose their legs all the time. That has happened many, many times. But snake skulls are unique among lizards. Because they're alien skulls. They're, <laughs> they're all mobile. They got all these cool different shapes to them. They've lost some bones. They've added some joints. Real cool yeah, skulls. I mean, it's barely holding itself together. So this new research is a report on... Eight new skulls Whoa! discovered of Nahash, plus three articulated postcranial remains, which is to say parts of the rest of the body. Wow. So, yeah, this is a haul. Jeez, overachievers. <laughs> yeah, this, this has <laughs> uh, uh, octupled <laughs> the number of... Well, no, it hasn't. It's whatever the next one would be. There are now oh. nine. There was one. There are now nine. <gasps> one of the new skulls is a nearly perfectly preserved skull in three dimensions. That's awesome. So just this wonderful, mostly uncrushed skull from a Lagerstaden, nice. a, a site of exceptional preservation from the La Buitrera paleontological area, which makes, uh, the authors point out, this now makes Nahash the best-known Mesozoic snake. Interesting. Which is really cool. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. So they use this opportunity to explore, right, Nahash is an early snake. What does this tell us about the transition from ancestral state to snakes as we know them? And can we, how does this change what we know of the snake family tree? Looking at the full skull, they found, not surprisingly, a mosaic of lizardy and snaky features including some of the mobile skull joints that you see in modern snakes, but not necessarily all the same stuff. Big skull, large teeth, very much like modern snakes in that regard, with some lingering lizardy uh, features. They also plugged a bunch of these new traits, these new skull features, into a phylogeny. So we've talked about this before. You make a list of all the traits, you compare them with a list of all the traits from its relatives, you throw it in the computer, and the computer uh, does it, does its magic, which isn't magic, it's all statistical yeah. analysis, and comes up with an estimate of how these different uh, species are related. Yes, but based on the information you gave me and the inf information you told me to use, this is where it should fall. So, a couple of unsurprising things... Nahash uh, was closely related to a bunch of ancient Gondwanan snakes, so southern snake origination. And this phylogeny confirms that limbed snakes are basal. That is the trait from the earliest portion of the snake family tree. But comparing that information with fossil remains shows that the origination of limbed snakes is way earlier than the latest fossils of limbed snakes. Ooh. This phylogeny indicates that the front legs did disappear very early on in snake evolution, as we see in, in many of these snakes, but that the hind limbs stuck around from at least 170 million years ago to 100 million years ago. Wow. So, back-legged snakes were just a thing for 70 million years. What were they doing with them? Which suggests, and I thought this was a really cool way to say it, 
the hind limb only morphology that that body shape was a stable and successful morphology. Yeah, there had to be something useful to having these back little dingly legs. It wasn't just a transitional. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're going through this yeah, phase. Yeah, we're and we'll phasing them out. It's taking a while, but you know, no, having just the back legs was what snakes were like for a huge chunk of the time that snakes have existed. My my brain is just reeling for the different uses <laughs> of just back limbs. I assume it's that they uh, they were probably doing a lot of the same stuff that snakes with pelvic spurs do today is is oh, yeah. mating and grappling and stuff like that. And they may have, you know, there are a lot of lizards today that have very reduced limbs. Yeah, just little... There are some salamanders that have done it. Another really interesting note that they found, this is more of a little of a technical one, but it, mm-hmm. they were very proud of it, so I will point it out. They were able to ascertain what happened to a certain bone in the snake's skull. Oh, one that's missing? So this is a little bit of technical uh, uh, diving. There is this bone behind the eye in snakes. And in lizards, there are two bones in that area. And so one of sort of the, the, the questions when you're uh, evolutionarily examining things is, which bone disappeared? Yeah. The snakes have one bone. Which of those bones is it? Because that can be informative as to how they evolved and why they may have been selected for that. To make it short, for a long time, people have assumed it was one. This snake skull indicates that it is the other one. Huh. That they have, it, they, they point out that for a long time, it was thought that the lizard post-orbital bone is what stuck around, and they lost the jugal bone. But here they can see that it is the opposite. Where this bone is still attached tells us that it is, in fact, the jugal, and the post-orbital bone is what was lost. Which sounds like a lot of, you know, esoteric naming of bones and stuff, but it's always fun to learn one a couple things. One, that we were wrong about something. Yep. <laughs> which is fun. And also, that clears up a little mystery of which bones exactly were lost and now we can start asking questions of why well now we know which bone a snake has (laughs) yeah right and that's kind of good to know yeah that's cool (laughs) similar arguments by the way have cropped up like um i know that i don't know if this is still an argument but for a long time there was a, a, a debate about bird fingers yeah yeah I, that was actually the example i was going to yeah. use to explain it which fingers did they lose and which ones do they still have yeah from the ancestral state it'd be like if we if we jumped millions of years in the future and humans are around but we only had three fingers which three fingers are they yep it might not be easy to tell if one of them's not <laughs> obviously a thumb <laughs> also uh fun when thinking about the evolutionary order of losing things look up like a comparative anatomists uh, numbering of teeth and then take those numbers to your dentist and confuse them yes yes (laughs) yes that is the the difference between the medical interpretation and the evolutionary interpretation for skeletal anatomy is fascinating yep you mean my p3 (laughs) the other thing the authors were were delighted to point out is that this New analysis just adds to the data that these early snakes were big-bodied, large-headed. Like, these are not little burrowers. These are not necessarily like what has otherwise been assumed to be the earliest representative of snakes. So today, the most basal snakes are often... People point at blind snakes and such. Yes, yeah. 
And because they are very basal and very weird today, some have suggested that might have been what the earliest snakes were like. These are not that. These are larger snakes. They have legs. They have these big mouths. They were more what you might expect from modern day snakes. More snake-like. Yeah. So fun new information on snake evolution. That's... Snake evolution is always interesting because it's already a unique body design. Like, not wholly unique. There are other long, slender, slithery things. But, like, that is already an extreme way to decide to go about the world. And then when you find out weird stuff within that is, you know, it's not just that we got long and we got rid of legs. No, no, we kept two of them for a while. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't. We, we we didn't want to commit. Call us nostalgic, <laughs> but we weren't ready to get rid of the back pair right away. <laughs> my grandparents used to crawl miles on their back legs, <laughs> and they were grateful. Well, speaking of how our world got to be the way it is, which is what we're usually doing. Let, yeah, that is a bit of a theme. <laughs> Let's take a step much much farther back. Four million years. Four. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to go back to the beginning to start our journey of discussion on the Great Oxidation Event. Pop quiz, Will. I'm ready. How much of the modern atmosphere is oxygen? I have to make sure I have my numbers right. 21? Oh, well done. Yeah. Yes. 21% of our modern uh, modern atmosphere comes in the form of O2, which is this sort of stable atmospheric compound of oxygen. Yeah, it's the, the good version. The good version. <laughs> Two oxygen atoms in happily married floating around in the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, just buddying it up. Oxygen today is super important. It is found all over the place. It is in the form of oxygen in the atmosphere, O2, as well as things like carbon dioxide. It is abundant in the ocean, obviously, in the form of H2O, also freshwater. Oxygen is the most abundant element in the Earth's crust in the form of silicon dioxide, Interesting. which is what makes up quartz yeah. and related minerals. I read somewhere uh, during this, I didn't write this down, that it is by mass the most abundant element on Earth. I didn't know that. Or at least in the land, sea, and air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is the most abundant. It's also one of the most abundant elements in the universe, or yeah. at least in the Milky Way galaxy. Oxygen's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm important. They know me here. Yes. <laughs> Pop quiz, Will. Okay. That oxygen almost entirely in the atmosphere comes from one source do you know what that source is photosynthesis yes yeah i yeah. i was i had a moment where i was like <laughs> you're on you, the spot do you mean like place or group <laughs> yeah <laughs> like from south like, africa yeah because i was like <laughs> no it's like 50 50 between al algae and plants <laughs> yeah, yeah no photosynthesis photosynthesis is the source of just about all of the oxygen in our atmosphere, which is really cool. Yeah, no, it's photosynthesis real, real handy. And oxygen is, including photosynthesis, 
part of this grand cycle. Yes. That keeps it moving through these various places out on the surface of the planet. Photosynthesis is a metabolic process that produces oxygen. Respiration, which is what we're mostly doing, yep. is a process that takes in oxygen and thus it cycles. Yes. Oxygen is also moved around by weathering processes uh, on the Earth's surface. Oxygen is exchanged between the water of uh, the ocean and the atmosphere. Oxygen is constantly moving around. It's also just a really big deal chemical item. I mean, it's it's very much a, a currency in like a lot of these systems is you can track what step you are in the systems by counting your oxygens and like it's a it's a big indicator of what chemically is going on by yes. where it's moving and what it's doing. And I like the the notion you 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 said that it's like currency mm-hmm. and yeah, it very much it, it it's it's very important in global chemical reactions especially in metabolism yes yes oxygen is famously involved sort of iconic in what are known as redox reactions so if you took chemistry at some point you may remember hearing about redox reactions these are chemical reactions where an electron is being transferred from one compound or one element to another Mm -hmm. one is being reduced Gaining an electron, lowering its charge, getting a more negative charge. The other is being oxidized, losing an electron, and thus getting a more positive charge. Yes. Oxygen. Oxygen is an exceptionally good electron acceptor. Yes. So when there is an element out there that needs to get rid of an electron, oxygen is ready to oxidize the other thing. Mm -hmm. The oxidizing agent. This is ex- exceptionally important for things like our own respiration. Yeah. So during uh, respiration, not to go into super details, but there is this incredibly important process called the electron transport chain. Oh, yeah. Which creates a gradient through which protons can travel, and that basically just keeps the whole engine running. That transport chain works because oxygen is there keeping the electrons moving. Accepting the electron at the end of the chain which is why it's so valuable and important for our own respiration. This is true to many of our uh, chemical reactions. Many of the chemical reactions important in our world happen, require oxygen to, to happen. Photosynthesis, even though it produces oxygen, also mostly needs oxygen to occur. Yes, it does. Life as we know it does not work without oxygen. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where... Even in situations where it's not directly related to breathing, you know, cellular respiration is happening in every cell, and that is all using oxygen as one of the main components to trigger that reaction. Yes. However, if we take a trip back in time, it was not always like that. No, it wasn't. No. Let's, let's journey back, shall we? To the early Earth. Now, I don't mean... The Cretaceous. Uh, the Triassic. Or the Cambrian. Okay. The Archean Eon begins around 4 billion years ago. So a bit. This is early Earth. 4 billion. Back then, 
It is uh, estimated that the atmosphere would have been largely composed of nitrogen, which is also true today. Yep, still is. But with very, very little oxygen, if any. I've seen estimates uh, back there. So you can estimate, we'll talk a bit more about how you estimate uh, atmospheric concentrations, but largely you're using other chemical proxies to infer, okay, this chemical is at this state in these rocks, how much oxygen would there need to be for that to be possible? Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Because, you know, it, it's sort of one of those things, of, if I can tell you I've put these chemicals into this vat of water, using just the chemical knowledge of how they interact, you should know what you'd expect. Right. And there are certain forms of certain chemicals, certain elements in ancient Archean rocks that shouldn't be able to be there if there was more than about 0.001% atmospheric oxygen. <laughs> if there was basically any. <laughs> basically no oxygen. Yeah. This was partially uh, uh, due to the fact that it, any oxygen there would be gets locked up in other stuff. Oxygen gets locked up in water. It gets locked up in iron deposits. So there wasn't free oxygen in this earlier. Yeah, yeah. It's busy being other molecules. You know, it's not just O2, it's H2O and it's other things. Instead, we expect to have seen conditions like what we see on other planets' atmospheres today. Yee. Atmospheres that are full of hydrogen, H2, or things like methane, CH4. So atmosphere, quite unlike what we have today, chemical, you know, chemistry very different. Right? You, you don't get the same kind of reactions that you get in a, an atmosphere that doesn't have oxygen, that has hydrogen or has methane instead. Yes. So you have different chemical signatures in the early Earth. You also have different life. Yeah. There is, in fact, life back then. There's not much of a fossil record, <laughs> but there is life. The trouble with the early Earth fossil record is, number one, it's been subjected to more tectonic activity than any other age. Longer time means more tectonic, yeah. messing with it. More time for stuff to go wrong and it get destroyed. Also, the life back then were microbes. Itty bitty. Simple microbes. Not even like big microbes. Yeah. Like really the simplest of microbes. Not even an amoeba. Not even an amoeba. You couldn't cure a two-celled amoeba. <laughs> That bonus points to the person that gets that ridiculous reference. <laughs> but these are microbes. These are prokaryotic microbes. So that is the same category that modern day bacteria and archaeobacteria fall into. Simple, unnucleated cells. And they would have been anaerobic. Yeah. Which is to say, respiring, metabolizing in the absence of oxygen. And... These kind of bacteria still exist today. Yes, they do. Yeah, it's not that they've gone away now that oxygen's around. They're just functioning in specific situations where there's not a lot of oxygen, like still water and stuff like that. Yeah, like hydrothermal vents mm -hmm. or in your stomach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. We do have some evidence of these types of organisms back in the days. Famously, things like stromatolites. The earliest fossil evidence in the world is stromatolites. These are layers of sediment laid down by microbial mats. Yeah. So these sort of goo, this ooze that would have uh, created these sediment layers. Built up very much the way a coral reef is, but built up by bacteria. And what are called biomarkers. Mm-hmm. So these are remnants of organic molecules that indicate biochemical 
uh, processes. So to give you an example, photosynthesizers take up CO2 mm-hmm. as one of their fuels. Well, life just passively, well, there are multiple forms of carbon. Mm-hmm. There, You got your C12, you got your C13, and they have different, slightly different subatomic compositions that make C12 slightly lighter in weight, literal weight, and thus easier to move. Yeah. So photosynthesizing organisms tend to preferentially take up lighter carbon isotopes, which means the surroundings will have more heavier carbon isotopes. Yeah, because you're eating up all the light stuff and leaving behind the heavy, lunky stuff. Things like that will get recorded in the rocks and the sediments and the seawater and indicate biological activity. Yeah, you'll, you'll see uh, uh, overall situations that really only make complete sense if there was something metabolizing stuff. Yes. And we have evidence of this. We have evidence of life of some kind at least three and a half billion years ago. There is evidence that microbial life was basically global by about three billion years ago. Which is crazy. Which is so cool. Bacteria-like life was everywhere by three billion years ago. Haha, take that inanimate objects. <laughs> take that, rocks. <laughs> As for what kind of life, we can learn a bit about this by looking at what lives today. So in a world without oxygen, you could get things like methanogens. These are organisms that produce methane. They're using things like hydrogen as their fuel source. So cows. So cows. (laughs) (laughs) Bacteria type things that are eating hydrogen and producing methane as their, their waste. Yeah, right. Very relatable. Yeah. Yep. They operate without oxygen. They're often uh, heat-loving, thermophilic. There are other types of organisms that can use other things, other chemicals as fuel sources, things like iron, Yeah, certain compounds of iron and such. This is what you'll hear called uh, chemosynthetic organisms. They're not using photo, photons, light. They're using other chemicals as their catalysts. There is also the option of doing photosynthesis in the absence of oxygen. Interesting. Anoxygenic photosynthesis uses compounds like hydrogen sulfide or iron compounds. Instead of producing oxygen, it produces sulfur compounds. So it's fueling the same thing. It's still using light to make energy, but the fuel you're using instead of oxygen is other stuff. And the product you're producing is horrific (laughs) (laughs) well but at the time that's what everybody was doing it was it was the hot thing that's so interesting (laughs) and then of course the op the uh, uh, other option there is oxygenic photosynthesis which produces oxygen yeah you're getting your hydrogen from the water you're producing oxygen and early oxygenic photosynthesis which we there is evidence of early on back in the archaean is ascribed to cyanobacteria. Okay. Cyanobacteria are a group of photosynthetic bacteria still around today. Yes, they are. Super abundant today. Uh, Sometimes they're called blue-green algae, but you will get into arguments with people about what algae actually means. Yeah, algae is one of those weird things because there are multiple groups of (laughs) alga. Yes. (laughs) There's multiple groupings. often distributed by color and all with vastly different features like yeah like kelp falls into one of those 
groups, which is as plant-like as you could ask it to be, but isn't technically a plant. No. Even though it's got stalks and leaves. Well, an algae, a lot of people will use algae for protozoans. Yeah. Specifically. Not plants, not bacteria. Which is why some people would argue that blue-green algae are not algae because they're prokaryotes, they're bacteria. Regardless, cyanobacteria, there is evidence for photosynthesis, biomarker evidence for photosynthesis, back to the end of the Archean, around 2.7 billion years ago. So not too long after we know that microbes were globally distributed. Once they took over the world. Yep. (laughs) There is possible evidence that has been suggested for photosynthesis even further back. As far back as the oldest fossils we have. Which, I mean, I would not be surprised in any extent if something was doing it. Yeah. You know, how common it was would be the the interesting question. But I mean, I, surely at, at the beginning of life, you know, who knows what everything's doing. Yeah. So, and it's real hard to know. Yeah. It's so hard to interpret this evidence, to find it in the first place. As you can imagine, counting isotopes of carbon, <laughs> it it's we're working on indirect evidence. We're trying to interpret, oh, like... The, the 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 chemical chain goes from the atmosphere to the ocean to life to the rock. And you're trying to figure out this puzzle. And there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of uncertainty. Well, and even, even after you've done that analysis, what you end up with is uh, uh, very strong suggestions. Yes. For stuff. You don't actually have a, and this has led us to the footprint of the first, you know, photosynthesizing bacteria. Right, right. You have this sure really does seem like it should, could suggest. Yep. But you don't have that direct evidence. Which raises the question of when did oxygen really start to rise? Yeah. Obviously, today, oxygen is a big deal. When did that start to happen? During the Archean, there are, there's occasional trace elements, evidence of periods of high oxygen. Mm-hmm. Or places of high oxygen. What what I, I have repeatedly seen called whiffs. Whiffs of early oxygen in the Archean. Where you'll find a little bit of evidence here that there was some oxygen. I like that. One of them is around the end of the Archean, you start to see what are thought to be proteins produced by eukaryotes metabolism. So eukaryotes are our type of cells. Yeah protozoans, animals, plants, the the, the more complex multi-partition cells. Yes. Protein evidence of eukaryote metabolism, which require oxygen in order to be formed. Okay. And so this could be you've got a whiff of oxygen. It could be that you have early eukaryotes living in a place where there are oxygenic photosynthesizers. So maybe a little oxygen ecosystem this little oasis of oxygen just enough for your eukaryotes to to start doing their thing but for the most part the archean from four billion to around two and a half billion years ago is a prokaryotic microbial anaerobic world no oxygen no not usable oxygen in any like big scale way which is extremely notable because that's meaning like for a vast chunk of life's history we weren't relying on now one of the most important elements yep and that's that i loved the comparison to alien worlds to oh yeah other planets that 
that's why those comparisons do matter because Earth was an alien planet as far as we today would be concerned. Yeah, which is funny because the thing that changed it is what other planets would consider aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Which brings us to the end of the Archean, the transition between the Archean Eon and the Proterozoic Eon, and an event called the Great Oxidation Event. Dun, dun, dun. Also known as the Great Oxygenation Event, or the Oxidation... I've seen a lot of names for these. Uh, You'll see it called the Oxygenation Tragedy. (laughs) <laughs> or, or catastrophe. That's, that sounds like biased <laughs> reporting on the part of the Archaeans. Yeah, doesn't it? There's <laughs> those uh, uh, thermophilic hydrothermal vent <laughs> sulfide bacteria. Like, <laughs> tragedy. <laughs> the Great Oxidation Event was coined recently, only uh, about 20 years ago. The classic idea is that you had this long period of no oxygen, then a stepwise rise in uh, yeah there was a, a peak here there was another peak later yeah it wasn't a constant all of a sudden oxygen just went it went boop 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 and just yep. jumped up a few times and i'll tell you before we even start that is not that is no longer what appears to be the case <laughs> it looks like I take back all my sound effects there was a lot of up and down there was you've got these complex interplays between oxygen and other chemicals and life As I said, there's a lot of debate about exactly when and exactly where and exactly how much certain when oxygen rose and when it fell and what the reasons were. So here's the disclaimer. A lot of this is still being worked on. Very difficult to measure this kind of stuff. But in general, it is fairly agreed upon that this boundary, this Archean Proterozoic boundary around 2.5 billion years ago was the critical transition. So that's where we saw it shift atmospheric density of oxygen. This is where we start seeing real solid evidence that something was going on. Here's what some of that evidence is. Things start appearing and disappearing. Not life, I know. We'll get there. (laughs) For example, there are famous sandstone deposits from this time period called the Red Beds. Good name. And the reason they're red is because they contain iron oxides. Oh, like rusty stuff. Rusty stuff. And in order for those to form, you need oxygen. Yep. There are other mineral deposits that are oxidized, suggesting that there was an increase in some kind of oxidizing agent. On the other hand, things that used to survive on Earth no longer did. So in the Archean, uh, like I said, you see a lot of the isotopes of things like sulfur. Yeah. Famously, sulfur is is a one that's pointed to a lot that only persist if there's no oxygen around to mess with them. Gotcha. Those disappear. There are also uh, certain minerals. We'll find uh, uh, geologists will find grains of certain minerals that, again, the a mineral in that state only works if there's no oxygen around to react with it. It really is kind of amazing how much of a parallel there is between the interactions of the chemicals and the elements and an ecosystem right. undergoing like it's a it's a chemical ecosystem and extinction. Yeah, those detrital mineral grains went extinct. <laughs> we also see things like uh, iron, the, the 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 compounds of iron we see in soils at this time, early you know, so not soils like we know them, but dirt and stuff reflect that there is higher oxygen famously 
there are the banded iron formations yes. in the oceans, which, so these are these really cool striated iron deposits. They are extremely common around this time. Possibly they are related to the oxidation and deposition of iron, that they may be indicating iron being deposited as part of its reaction with oxygen. Mm-hmm. I found a note that pointed out that starting at this time, and for the next half a billion years, uh, this was in a, a paper that I wrote, it is it has been estimated that 90% of the tonnage of all known iron formations were probably deposited between around 2.6 and 1.9 billion years ago. Wow. As oxygen is rising in the oceans. So basically, and this is when we got iron. And this is when iron happened. <laughs> yeah. yep. And then iron for a little bit. You're welcome, Tony. <laughs> and at this time, there are shifts in carbon isotopes that have been interpreted as suggesting intense burial of organic matter. Ooh. Lots of organic stuff was happening. Now, there is some question as to what it was at this time that seems to have kicked off the rise in oxygen. Yeah, what suddenly started pumping oxygen into the atmosphere? The obvious answer is photosynthesis. Yep, that's the the <laughs> that's prime suspect. That is the uh, reason we have all this oxygen in the world today. But, as people have pointed out, we have evidence for photosynthesis before this. Possibly way before this. So, what was it? That led to this sort sort of sudden turnover. Yeah, why now? Why now? If indeed it was sudden. And it might not, it may have been a little more gradual. Yes. Some have suggested that it was simply a matter of the oxygen sinks being overwhelmed. That is, your photosynthesizers are producing oxygen, and it's getting taken up by iron, and it's getting, you know, reacting with methane in the atmosphere, and it, the, the water is absorbing it. Maybe it just... Reached a tipping point. Yeah, you had no more storage, and there's no place to go but up. Yep, and so now you just had free oxygen. Yeah, starting to to get out. Those those overambitious photosynthesizers. Another suggestion has been, and this will this will make Will happy with for his astrophysics Yee. background. It's been suggested that around this time the atmosphere may have lost enough hydrogen to allow oxygen to take some of that place in the atmosphere. Ooh. Because hydrogen, fun fact, you know how hydrogen balloons rise? Yeah. Because they're lighter than air? Yeah, well, free hydrogen just leaves. leaves. <laughs> it's just, my people need me, and it goes yeah. up into space. The The atmosphere is so often shown as this, like, uh, uh, force field around Earth. Right. That everything on Earth stays on Earth, and every now and then weird things come out, and we send stuff out. But that's not how it works. Like, it is a permeable membrane yeah. And yeah, stuff can just leave it. So we're just losing hydrogen. Yeah, we're just, we're leaking into space all the time. So when you let a helium balloon go, it goes up and up and up and then it pops and all the helium escapes and then the plastic falls down and kills a sea turtle. Yes. <laughs> also at this time, uh, others have pointed out that there was a bit of a tectonic reorganization at this time and we start to see more uh, continental volcanic activity. Ooh. And geology people out there, your uh, uh, oceanic crust is made of different compounds than your continental crust. So volcanoes, submarine and subaerial volcanoes, release different compounds. Cool. 
which may also have contributed to some of this chemical upset at the time. One way or another, something changed that allowed oxygen to continue to rise. We know the source of the oxygen. That's photosynthesis. That's where oxygen comes from. Yes. What it was at this time, as as always, probably a complex interplay of things. We can also hypothesize about the side effects of having extra oxygen. One of them is that, so oxygen gets into the atmosphere, it forms O2. Yes. Well, when O2 reacts with certain uh, radiation from the space, it becomes O3. Yeah, ozone. Ozone. So we would have begun the formation of an ozone layer as oxygen began to accumulate in the atmosphere. Because the sun is a deadly laser. The sun is a deadly laser. Also, there's evidence for increased weathering at the time. Ooh, cool. Which may be related to that changing chemical composition of the atmosphere and rising oxygen and the start of an ozone layer to protect you from UV and the weathering of nutrients out of the rocks into the water is a wonderful recipe for life as we know it. Yes. And indeed, biomarkers at this time suggest increased productivity, which is to say more life. Yeah. Increased productivity is a word you hear when geologists are inferring things like algal blooms in the fossil record. This appears to be a good time for certain types of life. So this would literally be changing the way the sky is functioning and potentially the color of the ocean. Like, this is fundamentally changing the way the world works and looks. Yes. Which is neat. Now, all of this is chemical inference. Yes. Right? The oxygen is rising. Uh, We're seeing things that might have helped out life, biomarkers for life. But there's also phylogenetics to help back it up. I read a study from 2013, I believe, that did a phylogeny of cyanobacteria. So interpreting relationships between cyanobacteria and estimated, based on their evolutionary tree, that cyanobacteria evolved before the Great Oxidation event, but diversified around this time. That's cool. That there was a diversification of different types of cyanobacteria. They also suggested their evolutionary tree indicated that multicellularity in cyanobacteria originated around this time. And not only were they diversifying, but they were testing out an entirely new life life style yeah 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 a whole new uh diagram of building yes that's a big deal (laughs) there has also been evidence that eukaryotes get their start around this time including those protein biomarkers i mentioned earlier this seems to be the time that complex celled organisms kick off in fact i saw one study actually i think this is a couple of studies this may be a more recent hypothesis that for a short period of time in this world as oxygen was rising and the ozone layer hadn't yet formed, what you would have had was lots of reactive oxygen compounds just floating around, plus UV radiation, both of which are bad things. Yeah. Rea- you don't want just free oxygen stuff floating around. That, because they're super reactive, it'll it'll mess up with your chemical processes. Yeah, reactive stuff is, I mean, that that's what happens with like, acids is they're reacting very aggressively with what they're touching and they're changing it chemically so like reactive stuff can be very damaging so some have been suggesting that in that 
slightly harsher world of increased opportunity for DNA damage, for metabolic disruption, that may have been the selective pressure environment that led to eukaryotic cells, but also some of the things that eukaryotes are famous for, like endosymbiosis. Yeah. The fact that we, our cells absorbed bacteria and now we're part of the same thing. <laughs> Quickly, hide within my body. And sexual reproduction. Yeah. That the need for quicker repair, the need to adapt to that slightly harsher environment may have driven, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big maybes. Have driven the evolution, plus your increased oxygen, your increased nutrients. This was a time for lots of life experimentation. Mm -hmm. Lots of new things were happening. It seems life bloomed. (laughs) Every idea is a new idea at this point. And so try them all out. (laughs) And while we're talking about the rise of oxygen, yes, we, we, we mentioned that tectonic activity was changing and that your atmospheric activity was changing. But the other thing, of course, based on all this evidence that was changing at the time, is that life was expanding. Yeah. So if more oxygen was allowing your cyanobacteria and other life to do better, well, as that life does better, your photosynthesizers are doing better and producing more oxygen, which then improves conditions for your photosynthesizers and so on and so on. Yeah, there's how you get exponential things where it feeds into itself to increase. There have been estimates that by the peak of this runaway rise in oxygen, oxygen levels in the atmosphere may have reached as high as 10 to 20 times modern levels. That's quite a bit more than I thought you were about to say. (laughs) Wow. An enormous amount of oxygen. That's a lot of oxygen. Now, again, whenever I use numbers, I'm always, Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to clarify this is being worked on actively. Yes. I've seen that number cited in a couple different papers, but I can't tell you off the top of my head if they were both written by the same people. They may have been. Yeah. But suffice it to say, big rise in oxygen. The great oxidation event. Life changed. Global chemistry changed. This was a big deal. But this is episode 75. This is an extinction episode. So it has to be bad for someone. (laughs) And it was. (laughs) We mentioned before that anoxic adapted life, right? Life that lives in the absence of oxygen is still around today. Yeah. Lots of places. That's a big part of how we clean the the bones for stuff at the museum that we want to study. Yes, it is. Hydrothermal vent ecosystems have a lot of anaerobic things inside of animals' bodies. Their gut microbes are often anaerobic, doing oxygen-less things. But there's a reason that they are relegated to hidden away, secluded places. Yeah, that you're not just stumbling upon them (laughs) and tripping over them. It's not that they don't want to hang out where the air is. (laughs) It's that oxygen is poison. Yeah. Oxygen is chemically reactive, like we were saying before. Oxygen can really mess with your metabolic processes if you are not the type of organism that 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 needs it around that is to say oxygen is bad for life well and that's something that i i, I wanted to make a point of here that's 
kind of an interesting take because you'll often hear questions are like, how is it that earth is so perfect for life? You know, like, how is it that everything here seems to be so perfect for life? You know, that seems, you know, crazy coincidental. And the truth is, it's not for all life. There's a huge section of life that would have been much happier if earth wasn't this way. Yeah. Earth was perfect. Yes. It was fine. It was, it was fine. And then these newcomers came in, (laughs) spewing oxygen everywhere. (laughs) Not only does oxygen mess with anaerobic, uh, uh, metabolism, oxygen in ecosystems would have gotten rid of the other potential metabolic fuels. Yeah. Like it's reacting with the things you need for your weird metabolism. Yep. So it's taking away the fuel that other organisms might be using. So an influx of oxygen was a huge problem. So all these, those anoxygenic photosynthesizers, those anaerobic respirers, those methanogens, all those creatures that were not just the dominant form of life on Earth, life on Earth. Yes. This is a terrible time for those. Mm Mm-hmm. Which leads people to suggest, and this is where we get into why this is a weird extinction episode, there must have been an extinction. If those were the dominant form of life, there's no way they could have skirted past this without experiencing an extinction event. This was likely a major mass extinction, but we don't have any fossil evidence for it. We can't say exactly what was living before it. We can't say exactly what disappeared. But we can certainly hypothesize. Yes. There's also other evidence for for think times being tough. Those same tectonic changes that were happening were resulting in declines in fuel. Oh. So there was a recent study that came out that found that at this time, looking at iron isotopes to infer other chemical activity, suggested a massive decrease in nickel. As that tectonic change was happening, you would expect less nickel erupting from the mantle through the oceans. And indeed, the isotope chemical evidence shows that. And what's notable is that nickel is a major component in the enzymes used by a lot of methanogens, microbes that produce methane, anaerobic microbes, Yeah. today. Huh. That study uh, found evidence to suggest that nickel at this time went from where the levels it was at in the Archean to about half. Wow. So things were not great for anaerobic organisms. There was probably a huge replacement as those organisms were on the decline and the more oxygen-loving species were doing okay. I mean, this is like uh, a sci-fi story when aliens come and terraform a planet. Yeah. They're like... They're eating, they're, they're using your fuel and resources for their own weird metabolisms, and they are changing the atmosphere to poison. Yep. Like, everything is bad. Now, imagine, if you will, a sci-fi scenario where a species goes to a planet and starts messing with everything and chemically altering things, and it has unexpected consequences. <laughs> so this is a time period not only would there have been major extinctions, most likely in the microbial realm, it was also the time of a methane collapse. Oh, no. So, two reasons. One, your methanogens are probably not doing great. Yeah. So they're releasing less methane. But also, 
oxygen and methane, like uh, O2 and methane, don't get along, apparently. Or Hmm. perhaps they get along too well. (laughs) Yeah. The way that I heard this described, and I love it, so so I wrote it down, is that O2 and CH4 annihilate each other. (laughs) Which I believe means they react with each other in a way that you are left with neither. Yeah. I think, and I, 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 I think I read... And I don't, chemistry, huh, uh, that they form CO2. Gotcha. One way or the other, O2 and CH4 will react with each other and thus, you know, neither can live while the other survives. So while you're getting rising oxygen in the atmosphere, you're also going to start reducing your methane levels. Now that may sound great. Yeah, it's going to smell better. It's going to smell better. It's not going to be blue or whatever. Yeah. Uh, But methane happens to be an extremely potent greenhouse gas yeah it does and if you remove greenhouse in fact methane has been suggested as i as i'm sure will knows as one of the explanations for how early earth could have been warm enough for that early life given that the sun should have been weaker yeah back at that time methane's a greenhouse gas it traps heat yep so early earth was probably full of methane and as your methane decreases, you are losing your heat shield or your heat, your blanket, your yeah, security yeah, your blanket, insulation. which means that you would expect cooling. Yeah. And indeed, we got it. This marks the start of what is called the Huronian glaciation. This is a period of time where there are numerous glaciations recorded across roughly 2.4 to 2.2 billion years ago around the time of this oxidation event where we find glacial deposits at low latitudes. (laughs) Which is to say, you have rocks, you you have uh, sediments that are deposited by glaciers as far down as near the equator. Yeah. This is a phenomenon that we have a catchy special name for. Will? This is Snowball Earth. Snowball Earth. A global, almost down to the lowest latitudes, glacial period. Where, where almost every part of Earth experiences regular below freezing temperatures. We are Hoth. We are Hoth. Yeah. <laughs> this I have seen described, I think this was, it was on Wikipedia, so, you know, as, as Earth's oldest and longest ice age. Cool. Because it appears to have lasted hundreds of millions of years. Jeez, early Earth. <laughs> So we had this rise in oxygen and all of the cyanobacteria and such were like, this is great. And then it wasn't. Well, because this is something that, you know, may seem really crazy that all of these little microorganisms are changing the face of the planet with their crazy chemistry. But this is something that we talk about all the time with modern, you know, atmospheric conditions. Of, oh, yeah. We're concerned with greenhouse gases, methane and CO2 being the two of the big ones getting into the atmosphere in too high of quantities, thickening our layer that's going to insulate the heat from the sun. Yep. And we're wanting to plant trees to combat that excess CO2 and bring it back out. But if that combat continues too long, it could thin that. So like, this is stuff we are talking about still today. It was just happening completely unchecked back yep. then. And a globe, once again, we don't have a fossil record. Yeah, but it is very difficult to imagine a global ice age 
a snowball earth or, you know, slushball earth or whatever version of it you want to like, imagine. Yeah, I like that name. Slushball is not, not quite ice all the time. Without massive impacts on life at the time. Yeah, they just all bundle up in little winter coats and they're fine. And indeed, there is... Uh, so there was another study that I came across a very recent... I think this one was actually earlier this year, 2019, that looked at isotopes of, in this case, barium and sulfur, as a proxy for bioproduced oxygen. So, okay, how much oxygen is being produced by our biological organisms? And what they found is lots of production during the Great Oxidation Event. Yes. Expected. And then as the Great Oxidation Event wanes, an enormous drop in productivity. You produced oxygen too greedily and yeah, without, yes. without questioning the consequences. <laughs> when I say enormous, they estimated at least an 80% loss of productivity, which is to say of organisms producing oxygen. That's, that's, now, like, this, this sounds like it goes from, you know, boom, 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 but we're still talking about billions. <laughs> oh, yes. This is, this takes place over the course of at least, it seems, two or three hundred million years. Yeah, so, like, this is still a vast amount of time, but it means we went from basically no oxygen in the atmosphere to suddenly a huge increase in organisms producing oxygen massive amounts of oxygen and then the vast majority of those organisms died yep like that is that is, that's a, just such extremes that seem uh, you know uh, <laughs> b-movie scenarios today because it's yeah. so alien but it is and that's a good point that this is taking place over a time period equivalent to the time since the first dinosaurs yeah so this to, was to, to today this was taken a while <laughs> But it is still just huge shifts in the face of the Earth during that time. So what appears to have happened is that you had this massive rise in these in these organisms. But what has been hypothesized of this, and I love the, the phrase that this paper uses to describe it, is feast to famine. <laughs> that you had... All this, this oxygen rising, you had these nutrients being weathered out of the ocean, uh, out, out of the, the rocks, out of the continental sediments and such. And then you have all this new life using it, taking up those nutrients, locking them away, depleting the source of nutrients on land. The nutrients get buried with the organisms when they go down and die. So it has been suggested that the reason we see this big drop is that this boom of life, this algal bloom, did basically what algal blooms yeah. do, where they blooms, takes advantage of everything, uses up all the resources, and collapses. Yes. Except instead of happening in a pond, <laughs> it happened on the Earth. Yeah, globally. Now, whether or not this counts as an extinction event is hard to say, because a loss in productivity doesn't necessarily mean that species were going extinct. It could be that every species was reduced by 80% or yeah, something. That populations were going down. However, what appears to have happened during the Great Oxidation event is that a massive rise in oxygen almost certainly led to the disappearance of much of the biological population of Earth from beforehand and then triggered a major climatic shift that probably stressed out 
tons of life on Earth, and then a massive decline in the new productivity of Earth altogether over a few hundred million years, probably one of the worst biological tragedies in our planet's history. Maybe the worst one. Yeah. This, and this is why it's an extinction episode. Yeah, it's it's such it's such a crazy series of events because there was this very alien life on Earth. This this you know not actually alien, but very unfamiliar mm-hmm. life dominating the planet that then is it, not wiped out, but just significantly hindered. Yeah, by a new rising of life. That then goes on to produce its own situation that kneecaps that new grouping as well. So like it's uh, it's it's that very pride comes before the fall. <laughs> yes. Well, it's like an algal bloom that takes over a pond, kills all the fish, and then all the algae die. Yeah, and then it dies because it it the pond now can't support anything. So the Proterozoic Eon has begun. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter one. Chapter one. So. One of the most notable things that happens in the aftermath of the oxidation event is that oxygen levels appear to fall again. Yeah. Dramatically. Research has noted that as the Proterozoic continues, you end up with these relatively low oxygen conditions in the atmosphere and shallow ocean waters, perhaps as low, you probably fluctuating up and down, but perhaps as low as 0.1% of modern levels. Wow. So just this big rise and this big drop. It's just boomerang effect. And then probably fluctuating for the next several hundred million years. There's also chemical evidence as the Proterozoic continues for widespread anoxia in the oceans. Hmm. That you had times or places where you were severely depleted in oxygen. Or, or And eusinia, which is low oxygen, high sulfur huh. conditions. So things got, it was a big, it was a phase. Yeah, yeah. But it nonetheless provided effectively the foundations for the world as we know it. As all of our extinction episodes end with, yet it provided, we're one step closer. Um, Once upon a time, oxygen rising on Earth, as I mentioned before, was thought to be, it was very low, then the oxidation event, then it was a little higher, then the next event. Then get, it continued, then the next event, which doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. It seems to be that it went up and down and it fluctuated. But following the oxidation event, you had a lot of open niche space. All those old dead anaerobic friends have left open lots of opportunities for cyanobacteria and eukaryotes to start filling in. Oxygen does ultimately continue to rise in a world that is now, again, filling up with photosynthesizers. Yeah. You can't have a lot of photosynthesizers without that oxygen's going somewhere. Yes. As the oxygen continues to rise, the oceans and atmospheres become more like today. So the, the cycles we see today, carbon and sulfur and nitrogen and phosphorus, start to look a bit more familiar. Yeah, start to establish themselves as the regular chemical processes. By around 1.8 billion years ago... The deep ocean becomes oxygenated. Ooh, that's which important. Which did not happen during the oxidation event. The big oxidation event was atmosphere and shallow oceans. The deep ocean becomes oxygenated. That's also around the time that we run out of banded iron formations. 
It's also around that time that we see a new radiation of eukaryotic life. Eee. Now our oxygen is is filling in all the gaps. The next jump step, so such as it may be, in oxygen doesn't come until just under a billion years ago. Okay. Starting around 800, running to about 600 million years ago, where you see another rise in oxygen, another snowball Earth. <laughs> Did you not learn? And after that, the Ediacaran biota. Hey. Episode 31, the rise of plants and animals. Yeah. And then, of course, there's another O2 jump in the Carboniferous when forests become a thing. Yes. Hey, episode whatever trees was. <laughs> 73? Should be. It should be 73. Yeah. Yeah, 73. It's been a long day. It's been a busy day. <laughs> the Great Oxidation event was the first step in this gradual, tumultuous rise of oxygen. It set the stage for organisms as we know them today, for ecological cycling. Not like predator-prey, like we talked about in the Cambrian Explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like chemistry is doing the stuff we expect yeah. it to do in our ecosystem. Chemistry is finally kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing that I want to point out, because I read this and I thought it was super, super cool. I read a paper that pointed out that the Great Oxidation event is also responsible for a radiation in the diversity of minerals. Oh, that's cool. Because in the early days of the Earth... Minerals that have different oxidation states, so your chemical state can determine what kind of mineral you are. Yeah, yeah. Right? How you're reacting, what kind of compound you're forming, is going to be dependent upon how reduced or oxidized your various components can mm -hmm. be. Well, in the early atmosphere, where you didn't have a lot of oxygen for all of your fancy complex redox reactions, there would have been a cap on how many different forms minerals would have been stable at. So as the paper put it, essentially any element with more than one possible oxidation state could then be present in more oxidized forms in minerals in near-surface environments. This development resulted in an explosive growth in the diversification of minerals. That's so cool. Yeah. I also saw it written on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Salt. Because I didn't check the reference. And I don't remember if I couldn't access it or something. But it uh, referenced another paper that suggested that the number of modern minerals compared to back then, that at this time, the number of possible minerals effectively doubled. Wow. And there are hundreds of thousands of minerals <laughs> that have been identified in the world today. Wow. Which is so like we talked, we have spoken before many times about how life on Earth terraformed the planet. Yes. And yeah. And it started early. It sure did. The thing I also love about these kinds of discussions, as you said, we end or at least at some point come to the conclusion of every extinction episode that, and now we are one step closer. You know, we, we are um, one less degree of difference away from yes. Earth today. Just a one little, it's a little more recognizable now. But the other thing that I like about these sorts of events and looking at these events is it also indicates that by no means was this guaranteed. No. Like, it, the oxygen went up and then it came right back down to not quite what it was before. You know, as low as it was before. But not a lot more 
No. So it was, we were definitely at a point where the Earth could have gone an anaerobic versus an oxygenated atmosphere pretty much, for all we know, just as easily. Like, there's no indication that it was guaranteed. So I like these things because from the chaos, we have arrived here today. And I like, I always like going farther back because you learn, like, in the end Cretaceous, we learned that that is the event that allowed mammals to take over where once reptiles were dominant. And the end Permian changed the type of ocean ecosystem that existed, right? Like, the way that organisms lived in the Mm -hmm. oceans turned over. This event was the deciding factor between whether the Earth would be aerobic or anaerobic. Yeah. And one might argue it could also have been the deciding factor of whether or not multicellular and eukaryotic life became dominant on Earth. Like, this was the point at which what kind of cells are going to be the main players was being decided. Yeah. Like, the fundamental building blocks of complex organisms. So, like, this is these parts are always so interesting to me because we, we, you know, sci-fi sets up planets that seem so outrageous, but really the Earth was but a few changes of events away from being completely unrecognizable. It's it's a pretty intense event, and it's awesome. It's also, unless some wacky discovery happens, <laughs> I would suggest the oldest extinction we will ever talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Until they discover something weird on Mars. Yes. Then we'll have another extinction episode. <laughs> yes. Earth-based extinction. Earth. Yeah, it's the all Earth-based extinction. Where it mattered. No. Well, I hope that our listeners have a greater appreciation for the oxygen that they breathe. Yes. <laughs> well, almost didn't have it. <laughs> it nearly killed us to get it. <laughs> you know, it, it was a it was a fight. Before we go, I mentioned early in the episode that we have a patron question. Yeah. So this is from one of our newest patrons, Michael, who asks, does sexual isolation inevitably result from long-term physical isolation between populations? That is to say, if you separate a population physically from each other... Put some sort of barrier. Are they inevitably going to lose the ability... To reproduce or are there any instances of very distant species still being able to reproduce good question absolutely no there are, this, this is one of those where typically that that first uh, premise is is often the case that happens is if you separate species they're going to differentiate and the more you differentiate the more likely interbreeding is no longer going to be viable right it raises those chances but that is not by any means a guarantee. Uh, there are definitely situations of distantly separated or uh, uh, isolated species that, when reintroduced, breed perfectly fine. Yeah. I read one. I, I read a, an article. When I read the question, I pulled up an article mm-hmm. that was from earlier this year, I think. Nice. Of the discovery of, I think it was a narwhal and something else and some other cetacean. Interesting. I forget what they oh, were. But yes. No, I know what you're talking about. I don't know if it was a dolphin or if it was... It was it was a narwhal and something that were discovered to have successfully hybridized mm-hmm. despite phylogenetically being estimated to have split 1.5 million years ago. Yeah. I mean, you see that with um, 
that's one of the big things threatening Cuban crocs is interbreeding with American crocodiles. Yeah. And those are definite different species. You know, they're, they're not subspecies of one another in any means. And physically, like m- morphologically, very different. Right. The The narwhal thing was two different genera. Yeah. Like, yeah. so you can get interbreeding and the reasoning for that isn't that somehow they've retained it from interbreeding, but just that as likely as it is that the more different you become, the less likely you are to be able to interbreed. There's also likeliness that maybe you just don't. Yeah, there's no rule that says, you know, you could theoretically, you know, you could imagine a scenario where everything changes except the compatibility of all of the things needed to reproduce. Yeah, that 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 for whatever reason, the changes made outside of that just don't end up affecting that or yeah. none of the selective pressures end up being on those features so physical separation is a great way it's a great path to take if you want to become reproductively split from another population but it's not necessary yeah well it's and but not necessary it's not a guarantee I it's not a guarantee say, yeah. exactly and there are lots of situations where you have a, a sexually compatible species that don't interbreed for reasons other than separation like yes. the behavioral barriers that we talked yeah. about or temporal you're, yeah exactly you, don't, you bloom at different times you your your sleep schedule's weird or your <laughs> song is stupid so no right. <laughs> <laughs> you know otherwise we'd be fine yeah uh so yeah good question excellent but there are question absolutely weird examples uh we talked about hybridization in episode 44 mm-hmm. so you can listen to a whole discussion about that yes well thank you lydia for your suggestion Great. This was a lot of fun this to go into. A, a cool, weird topic. Thank you, Michael, for your uh, question. It was a weird topic. I, I made this comment during one of the breaks. I This is like right on the edge of my comfort level. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot of chemistry, and I tried to leave. <laughs> there, somewhere in the outtakes, there's me trying to talk about redox reactions yeah. and just giving up. Yeah, it's... It's just at the edge of like, I know I learned some of this stuff at some point, And that was a long time ago. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if I said anything chemically erroneous, yep. which is possible, I apologize. I'm sure someone will let me know. <laughs> and I and yep, I'm and, not and a chemist. <laughs> we, we, ex- we accept your correction. <laughs> yeah, I, I just said what the Internet told me. <laughs> Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. As always, there will be links and pictures. I don't know how, what pictures we're going to use. Banded iron formations. <laughs> it's, it's, There's no fossils. And here's O2. Yeah, and right. here's CO2. <laughs> and here's H2O. It's going to be me playing with those uh, yes. models from chemistry oh, class. We'll order some on Amazon. <laughs> links and pictures in the blog post. News links in the blog post as well. More information for you to dive into. We release new episodes every fortnight. Mm-hmm. Episode 76 is next. Keep the suggestions coming. Keep reaching out to us. We love hearing from you. Keep an eye on our social media and in the episode description for a link to the form to submit your questions for our end of the year 2019 Q&A, which we're very excited about. Yes, ask us what you want us to talk about. And we might have a couple other bonus episodes coming up before the end of the year. Yeah. I won't say more than that because I don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah, because <laughs> maybe. Because scheduling is hard. We release episodes every fortnight 
And we manage it. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> scheduling cause... other things is difficult. And then life's in between. There's some someone out there is sitting there going, yeah, you said you were going to release that Dragon Con conversation. Yeah, we sure did. Yes, we sure did. And, and, we, and we sure will. Next episode will be in at least two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up for us. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.